Today we're going to talk about Midrash, what bothered the rabbis in Genesis 22, which starts on page 2 of your handout. We're not going to look at all those Midrashim, but a number of them, and then we're going to try to make some generalizations about Makedah in the rabbinic mind, especially next time. But I want to say something about Midrash before we begin. The first thing you have to remember about Midrash is that Midrash is Midrash. Now, that may seem self-evident, but whenever I've taught Midrash, which is pretty much every year, I always have students who are bothered by the fact that the Midrashim, the rabbinic interpretations of the biblical verse, violate what the students perceive to be the plain sense of the verse. Now, one could get into an interesting kind of hermeneutical argument, philosophical argument, about what do you mean by plain sense? What's the plain sense of anything? What's the plain sense of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution? Well, the Supreme Court split on that. So uh, the concept of plain sense is not as obvious as people might make it out to be. But one thing one has to understand about Midrash is it values creativity. The darshan, the person, the rabbi in the Talmudic period who spun a Midrash, valued creativity, and the associations that are made in Midrash are often associations among biblical verses that are very far from each other, very disparate in their location. One might be in Genesis, one might be in Psalms, one might be in Job, one might be in Leviticus. And the idea is to bring these disparate texts together and to try to make a theological statement using biblical verses as the word, so to speak, of the statement. You build a building out of bricks, you build a theological statement in rabbinic Judaism out of biblical verses. The theological statement will necessarily be larger than and even different from the individual verses. The verses are brought together by a principle of association, which is something other than just the plain sense of the verse, or whatever that means. Oftentimes, the similarity has to do with sounds. When I first came to Harvard, I, I was having lunch with a, a colleague who was a brilliant uh, Talmud Chacham, a brilliant uh, traditional scholar and brilliant professor, and he was lamenting the uh, decline of Jewish studies in the United States. And he said, you know, there are now universities where people come in and take a course in Midrash where there's no expectation they'll know Hebrew. And, of course, I had on the books already such a course. So I gulped hard and I said, you know, I've heard that. Right? <laughs> I don't know. That was 20 years ago. I'm always wondering, did he ever notice that I have a course? Did he read the catalog? I think he's so busy reading Talmud and a lot of other things more important than the Harvard catalog that he probably hasn't noticed that I actually do that. So it's hard to work in, in translation in Midrash, but not impossible. And the reason it's hard is that phonological similarities, similarities in sounds between words, suggest the associations. Whereas we might say, oh, those have nothing to do with each other. Well, they have something to do with each other in poetry, if you can appreciate poetry, you can appreciate Midrash, but if you say about poetry, oh, you know, my love is a red, red rose, what do you mean your love is a rose? Your, your love is not a flower, your love is not something growing in the forest, what are you talking about? If you think like that, plain sense, prosaically, you can't understand poetry. And if you think of Midrash as something trying to state the plain sense of the verse, of just one verse in isolation, whatever that means by plain sense, then you won't appreciate Midrash. So oftentimes when students raise their hands and make objections to a given Midrash, I try to draw out what their problem is. I says, no, you don't think this is the plain sense. You don't think this is the shot, the plain sense. That's right. I said, you're right. In other words, I agree with you. This midrash is a midrash. Right? And then they seem a little surprised with that. All right. Let's take a look here on text two. So this is the beginning of the story that which we read last night. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. The Hebrew word for test here is nisa. To put someone to a test is nisa. It, so that's our first verse we're going to talk about. Or to put it differently, what we're trying to do here actually is what they call ptichah, which one do I use? I use this one. 
what they call a petit oh my, things are big in California. Uh, except the waistlines. Uh, but the, um, the uh, a petit means an opening. Sometimes the darshan, the preacher, the expounder, would get up in the synagogue, let's say in the Galil, in the Galilee, in the third century of the common era, and introduce the sedra, introduce what's about to be read the following Shabbat. There was a sedra in ancient Eretz Yisrael in Talmudic times that began with Genesis 22.1, began with the Akedah. You say, wait a minute, that's Bayera today. That's not a, that doesn't begin. No, that's because you're using a Palestinian annual, excuse me, a Babylonian annual cycle. There was a time when there was a, 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 a parsha, which was nothing but the Akedah read once every three years. So he's going to get up and try to introduce it. He's going to introduce you to the first line of it. So the first line, sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test, Nisa. So we have this Genesis 22, 1. We have this word, I'll transliterate it like this, Genesis 22.1, Nisa. So to the, to the Darshan, the preacher who's doing this, the first thing he wants to do is draw a connection with a verse far afield, so as, among other things, to demonstrate the unity of the entire Tanakh, that even things in Nach, even things in, in the uh, Book of Psalms, for example, are relevant to the Pentateuch and speaking to the Pentateuchal situation, relative, relevant to the Torah and speaking to the Torah and vice versa. Now, as Midrash tries to take the tangled threads, very different, disparate threads of Scripture and draw them together into a kind of coherent statement. So what's the verse he takes? He takes a verse here from Psalm 60, verse 6. It is written, you've given them a banner... Here's Psalm 60, verse 6. There's a word. The banner will say, tested is Nisa. And banner is Nase. You have given them a banner. You've given a banner to them that fear you. Banner, flag, something like that. That it may be displayed. Lehit noses, because of the truth, Selah. Psalm 60, verse 6. Well, that's a big problem. What does that actually mean? You've given a banner to them that fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. All right. You imagine the congregation might be sitting there saying, what is with this Meshuggah preacher? What is this? How many of you did this last week in shul? Uh, nobody here goes to shul? Uh, the, uh, what is this? This has nothing to do with what we're talking You've given a banner to them that fear you because of the truth. All right. Well, what is that? Um, but here is the connection. This means trial upon trial, nisayon achar nisayon, greatness after greatness. So the, the connection is the similarity between the word for banner and tested. The testing of Abraham must be somehow to give him a banner. Trial after trial, the assumption being he's got more than one trial. This is the climactic trial. But why? Why do we have a climactic trial? Why do we have a, why do we have a testing of Abraham at all? I mean, you might have thought if you are God's chosen one, and you faithfully follow God, you should have a good life. You should have an easy life. You should have a life free of obstacles, challenges, tragedies, tests. And that might make sense to people closest to God. They ought to be the healthiest, wealthiest, richest, and happiest people without challenges. That's a model of religion that some people actually have. There are people that, 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 that think that. Uh, this makes a different point. Trial upon trial, which then leads to greatness upon greatness, the testing leads to greatness. The testing leads to magnification. Gidalon is the Hebrew here. In order to try them in this world, to put them to the test in this world, and exalt them in the world like a ship's ensign, like a ship's flag, 
Huggership's banner. So in other words, the point for, of these trials and tests is to establish a kind of greatness in the one tested, which then functions like a flag on a ship, identifying what it is and giving a, a message uh, to everybody else. Uh, and what is its purpose? What's the message? Again, back to Psalm 60, verse 6, because of the truth, in order that the equity of God's justice may be verified in the world. Again, a pun in Hebrew, titkashet, that uh, the equity of God's justice might be verified in the world. Uh, because of kosht, this rare biblical word, truth, titkashet, that it should be somehow verified. So what's the equity of God's justice? Well, last night I mentioned to you a problem you might have with the idea of Abraham's being chosen in Genesis 12. When he's chosen, he hasn't done anything. Gornished and gornished, I think, was the technical term I used last night. He hasn't done anything. What's special about him? He's some Mesopotamian schlep. Here's what you know. You know his, his genealogy? Guess what? His brothers have the same genealogy, as is often the case. And you know he's got a wife uh, who, who, who doesn't have a child. You know, she, a barren wife and genealogy. That's all you know. All of a sudden, of all the people in Mesopotamia that might fit that description, God then takes this guy and says, I'll make you a, a byword of blessing. I'll make you a great nation. And eventually he says to him, I'll give you a land. What, what's the point of that? It seems unjust. If you like it, you can call it the grace of God, the generosity of God. The undeserved uh, uh, beneficiary receives a phenomenal undeserved gift, unmerited gift from God. If you don't like it, I said last night, you can call it arbitrariness. Seems arbitrary. What's so great about Abraham? Why is God single out Abraham? In the background of that is a larger question that bothered the rabbis, of course, bothers many Jews today. Why the chosenness of the Jewish people? Why the chosenness of, uh, of Israel? What, what's the reason for that? What's the, what, what equity is in that? In an egalitarian universe, everybody's the same. It shouldn't make a difference whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. Everybody's the same. Just be a good person. Just be a human being. Who cares what you are? That's the uh, egalitarian uh, ethic. Chosenness becomes very problematic in that ethic. Even in the ancient world, I think it was problematic. It seemed problematic to uh, people, in the, and generally in the Greco-Roman world, that the Jews thought that God had established a covenant with them. Okay, um, so here's what it says. Thus, if one says, we're in the middle here of text two, whom he, namely God, wishes to enrich, he enriches. To impoverish, he impoverishes. Whom he desires, he makes a king. Since he wants to make someone a king, he makes him a king. This is an idea in the background that Abraham was a king, by the way, which we're not going into, but that, that is a very common uh, ancient conception. When he wished, he made Abraham wealthy, and when he wished, he made him a king. So the person saying that, what's his position? His position is, God is arbitrary. God is arbitrary. There's a certain extreme position in Calvinist Christianity, by no, no means all of Christianity, by no means all of Calvinism, but in, within a particular form of Calvinist Protestant Christianity, there is a certain extreme position that says God uh, designates certain people for salvation and certain people from damnation before they're ever born, predestines them. It doesn't mean anything to what they do. He mysteriously predestines them. And again, if, you, uh, if, if that appeals to you, you, you usually call it grace and are very thankful. Uh, if it doesn't appeal to you, you call it arbitrary and say, hey, that's unfair. So this person is saying it's really unfair. God can do whatever he wants. And he just happened to pick up this guy Abraham and make him rich and make him a king. Big deal. So what? Uh, uh, then you can answer him. Now you have the, the wherewithal to answer this heretic, this person who says something that's offensive to a basic doctrine of Judaism. You don't just ignore him and say, well, you got your position, I got my position, not a kind of relativist view, but no, you got an answer. Here's the answer. Can you do what Abraham did? Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Well, I don't think that's the in context of the extraordinary thing that Abraham did. 
right? In other words, I think, was it Jesse Helms? Didn't he do that too? I saw Bellow had a, ch a, a, a child in 84. I mean, you know, these, uh, I, that's not the, that, that's always quite an accomplishment. Uh, but, um, and I advise you to go out and try. Uh, but that, I don't think that's the key thing. He was 100, he's been waiting for 25 years for the son to be born. The son was born when he's 100, and more amazingly, his wife is 90. Okay. Yet, after all this pain, it was said to him, take your son, your favorite one. It was said to him, go out and, 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 and sacrifice your son. Yet he did not refuse. How many people would not refuse? How many people would have a, uh, a level of obedience such that even in the case of this special son on whom Abraham has, so to speak, bet his entire life, nonetheless, she's willing to sacrifice that son. Hence, you've given a banner to them that fear thee that it may be displayed. You've given a nace to those that fear you that it might be hit in those says. And what do you make of that to those that fear you? Well, what's the point of the Akedah according to the biblical text of Genesis 22? It's not primarily the faith of Abraham. That might be implied. It's not primarily God, Abraham's faith in God or Abraham's love of God. What's it actually say in the text? Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you fear me. So he's given a banner to those that fear him. That's another connection. You have multiple connections here between the uh, Akedah and this verse in Psalm 60, verse 6. You've given a banner to them that fear them. I think they read that probably maybe as if it were a singular, Lirecha, as something like the Yaracha, something like that, to the, the, to the one who fears you, that it might be displayed. So it is written, God put Abraham to the test. That's the first verse of the Sedra. At this point, the Darshan, the preacher, sits down. At this point, it sits down. We've now come, I've now introduced it. But he's introduced it by interpreting it. He interprets it as saying, this is to establish that God is not arbitrary, that the election of Israel rests on an extraordinary deed on the part of Abraham, which, is not, uh, to be, uh, which has not been uh, duplicated. And the basis of the connection is, again, similarities in sound between tested and banner and, and tested and hypnosis to flutter like a banner, to be exalted like a banner, uh, but also to say it's, it's, it's given to the one that fears you because the whole point of the test is to demonstrate Abraham's uh, fear of God. So you can see the way this midrash is not just a cute little story. It's trying to refute what it regards as a deviant theological position. The deviant theological position says God is purely arbitrary. Now, I could see, as I said last night, how you might think that if you just started opening up to the end of Genesis 11 and started reading the Abraham story. God makes this promise to Abraham out of nowhere, a bolt out of the blue. And there are other ways. I mentioned last night that, that ancient Judaism, and then later after that, especially Islam, tried to mitigate that. They said, well, actually, Abraham discovered God before God discovered Abraham. Abraham saw through idolatry somehow. He saw through astronomy somehow. He realized the material elements of the universe described by science, that's not all there is. There's something else controlling, something that those are, are indebted to. Those are creatures. Those are, that's creation that's under the power of a supernatural creator. He recognized that. And when he recognized that, God then spoke to him. And uh, so it makes Abraham a discoverer of God. Nothing like that in the Hebrew Bible. There was something like that in uh, Midrash. Uh, but here it's a different view. Here it is. Yes, Abraham may have started out that way as purely a beneficiary of unmerited divine grace. But guess what? That's Genesis 12. Fine. You get to Genesis 22. You see that Abraham has grown into the role. Greatness after greatness. Those tests, those obstacles, those difficulties in Abraham's life 
have made him worthy of the promise. He starts off unworthy of it, but, but through his interactions with God, he becomes worthy of it. And you, can no longer, you can't just say God is purely gracious and human action has nothing to do with it. Nor can you say it's just a question of what human beings do and the grace and generosity of God have nothing to do with it. The two of them are somehow interacting. Maybe, uh, should we take questions now or leave them all to later? What do you think, Ari? I would do them at the end. We'll do them at the end. Well, we, so, yeah, we will have time for questions at the end. Okay, let's take a look here at now text three, again on page two. Here we have a, a, a different way of beginning, a petechta, a uh, opening to a, uh, a reading of the sedra. Hashem tzadik yivchan, the Lord tests the righteous, Psalm 11, verse 15, verse 5, excuse me. Now, I can imagine an immediate problem with that. What's the problem with that? The problem, it seems to me, is, well, why is God testing? The test is, is, is painful. A test is, is, is painful. You go to, like, most medical procedures, they say, oh, we're going to have to test this or that. We're going to test the strength of your cardiovascular system. You're huffing and puffing on this treadmill and so forth. Uh, in other words, these are not pleasant things. We won't even get into colonoscopies and so forth. Uh, but these, these, uh, these are, the, the, this, the tests are rarely pleasant. Blood tests, all these, they're not pleasant things. You might have thought that the righteous, one of, this, one of the benefits of being righteous is you'd be spared tests. You wouldn't have to have this happen to you. Right? Your life would be free of obstacles. Your life would be free of pain and tragedy and worry. And that's what, that's what a, lot of people, a lot of people think the idea of being religious is to be more at peace, more at peace in the world, live a more comfortable life, and so forth and so on. Be happier. I'm not saying you're not happy. There actually is some statistical evidence that regularly religious people are uh, happier. But uh, is it really a purely uh, eudaimonistic, uh, hedonistic ethic that says the whole idea is just to achieve happiness, and if something in your religion doesn't make you happy, well, get rid of it and just replace it with something that makes you happy. Uh, uh, you might have thought that you would, but, but this, te this text in Psalm 11 says the Lord tests the righteous. Why the righteous? They deserve it less. So here's the answer. Rabbi Jonathan said, this is uh, second century of the Common Era. This these are all texts are all from Breshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, which is put together about in the 5th century in the land of Israel, but has, has material in it that goes back even into the 2nd, maybe even into the 1st century of the Common Era. Rabbi Jonathan said, a potter does not examine defective vessels because he cannot give them a single blow without breaking them. Right? The potter wants to test his wares. He gives a little tap, a little hammer. If he sees a crack down the side of it, he doesn't give it the tap. He knows it's defective. It's going to fall apart. But there might be a hidden defect. There might be a, a, something you don't see from the outside. That's why you give it the tap. That's why the potter tests the uh, sound vessels. It's only the sound vessels for he will not, what then does he examine? Only the sound vessels, for he will not break them, even with many blows. So what does that say? It says, uh, similarly, the Holy One, blessed be he, tests not the wicked, but the righteous. As it says, the Lord tests the righteous. Why is it the wicked often last, thrive, live long, happy, healthy, wealthy, prosperous lives? And the, uh, the righteous often don't, often have the opposite experience. Well, this interprets this suffering as probative, as a test. And the, the, uh, the, the assumption is some people, and this is, you see a lot of this in rabbinic literature, people are good at dissembling. People are very good at appearing on the outside very strong. And there may be all kinds of weaknesses and hidden vices inside. 
the test uncovers the hidden vice. It's like, I don't know, a, an MRI or an X-ray or something. It shows certain things that are not immediately visible. Uh, the uh, assumption here, I think, seems to be if you apply it to Abraham, Abraham looked on the outside like everything was great. He looked like a very faithful sort of person. But as I mentioned last night, there's a problem with that. So far, Abraham has been acting in response to promises, and he's been bringing the promises about in his own life. But what happens when the command is no longer a promise, namely no longer something that's to his benefit? What if it's something painful and gruesome and difficult, emotionally wrenching, like sacrificing what's most precious to him, namely Abraham, namely Isaac? As I mentioned last night, a, a sacrifice is not really a sacrifice unless it really means giving up something precious. Giving, getting rid of your excess uh, uh, you know, discretionary income or something because you're super wealthy, that's not a sacrifice. The sacrifice is when you really have to give up the vacation, you've got to give up the car, you've got to give up something uh, in order to, to uh, um, make the, uh, make the uh, gift. My wife and I have a standing dispute. We leave hotels, she'll put down like uh, for the maid, $2 bills for a night. And I'll reach in my pocket and I'll see what I have and I might have three cents. I put three cents down. She says, that's an insult to put the three cents. I said, what are you talking about? I'm giving her one and a half percent more than you are. I'm more generous. She's getting $2 and three cents from me, just $2 from you. Uh, but of course, what I'm really doing is just cleaning out my pockets of three pennies I'm unlikely to, to need. They might set off the, uh, the alarm in the airport or something. What do I need for three pennies? That's not a sacrifice on my part. Right? And inevitably, I take them back, and inevitably, I, I lose on that one. But uh, mathematically, I'm right. But in terms of the, the issue of kavod, you know, the issue of the respect for the person, maybe she's got a point there. They threw in their extra. It's almost insulting to have, throw in the extra three pennies. Uh, so a sacrifice has to be a real sacrifice. So what happens when, so maybe God has to test Abraham, not by saying, you know what, start walking, I'll give you a country. Hey, not bad. Or maybe he has to say something, start walking, the same words, lech lecha. The only time those two words occur in the Bible, by the way, lech lecha in that, that particular expression. Uh, start going, go out, and only this time uh, you have to immolate your beloved son. That's a different sort of test. That's a real test. Rabbi Yosef Bar Rabbi Hanina said, when a flax worker knows that his flax is of good quality, the more he beats it, the more it improves and the more it glistens. But if it is of inferior quality, he cannot give it one knock without it splitting. Similarly, the Lord tests not the wicked, but only the righteous. As it says, the Lord tests the righteous. There's something different in this one. In this case, it's a flax worker. I mean, I don't know from flax working. Uh, the only flax I know about is in cereal I eat and so forth to avoid heart attacks. Uh, but, the, uh, but presumably, it looks as though you hit this linen, you hit this, this, this flax, and it begins to glisten, and it doesn't split uh, if it's good. If it splits, it's bad flax. You can't use it for linen. All right, that's the assumption. Here, the test, you notice, the hitting is not like the potter hitting the pot. Here, the hitting is actually improving it. The flax is improving by being hidden. hit. This is painful. It looks a little bit like masochism, but uh, I think most of us, if we really were honest with ourselves, would admit we have grown through adversity. The adversity and suffering we have, we have had, we wouldn't wish it on anybody. We wouldn't wish it on ourselves again. On the other hand, we've, uh, we've grown through that. We've known, we known people, who, and there are few, very few of them, who've had pretty uh, easy lives, they often come across as very shallow people. I meet someone 40, 50 years old who's never had a tragedy, never had an issue of serious illness, death, financial ruin, nothing like that, uh, war, exile, or being a refugee, nothing. And these are often very shallow people, often very, very shallow people. I think when it's said up above, Gidalon, Achar Gidalon, 
greatness after greatness, I think it's the same idea, namely that it may look like, it may look as though God is uh, being a, a, a sadist, whacking Abraham with these tests. But the tests, in fact, according to this uh, interpretation, are actually improving Abraham, testing him, proving him he really is righteous. Okay, finally here at the end of text 3, Rabbi Eleazar said, When a man possesses two cows, one strong and the other feeble, upon which does he put the yoke? Surely upon the strong one. Similarly, God tests none but the righteous, as it says, the Lord tests the righteous. So if you want to know why is it that all these inferior people in Genesis that Abraham runs into are not being tested, and he is being tested, you have to understand there are reasons, according to the Midrash, according to the ancient rabbis, there are reasons for that, that it's not simply the happiness of Abraham, or at least the happiness of Abraham in this world, which is uppermost in God's mind, but there is a certain sense of moral growth, transformation, change, and genuine testing. Genuine testing to see if there is, in fact, a uh, hidden uh, defect. So that's a different reason for the Akedah. You see, both texts 2 and 3 are both answering, in a sense, the same larger question. Namely, why do we have this thing? Why do we have this thing? You might say, well, what did Abraham do wrong that he had to experience the Akedah? This is painful. What, what is he being punished for? But these two texts say not all <laughs> suffering is punishment. You can't assume that all suffering is punishment. Testing involves suffering, and that theology of probation, of testing, uh, that should not be simply understood as uh, a theology of punishment. Uh, but when you go to text 4, you see things change a little bit. Here's an alternative view of why we have the test. Sometime afterwards, sometime after these things, Genesis 22, misgivings, hirhurim, some sort of pun on ahar hadvarim and hirhurim. Ahar probably pronounced in the, uh, more like the Arabic, ha, ahar hadvarim and hirhurim were experienced on that occasion. What are the misgivings? Who had misgivings? Abraham said to himself, I have rejoiced and made all those rejoice. He had a big party in the previous chapter. He made this covenant with Abimelech, the uh, Philistine king. And a big, big, uh, big party, covenant-making sort of thing. He, I, I have rejoiced, and I made others rejoice. I gave a big party. I've been having a good time. Yet I did not set aside a single bullock or ram for the Holy One, blessed be he. Now this reminds me of a, a rabbi I once knew who gave a sermon I don't think terribly well, uh, uh, well received in his congregation, but gutsy, in which he said the amount of money that one spends on a simcha, on a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, a wedding, should never exceed the amount one gives to charity that year. Right? Some people will give, and I've, I have been to weddings which are three or $400,000. There are people known, uh, we, won't, we won't name the, the city on the East Coast, which is famous for this, uh, but there, there's areas that are known for the fact that people will mortgage their house to put on this big bash, right? A big shock and awe wedding, right? Uh, but uh, people will do this, and, and bar mitzvahs have become uh, what weddings once were. I really, I'm not all that old, uh, but uh, I, I think it's in my lifetime that I've seen the bar mitzvah boy carried on a chair. That used to be only the bride and groom, right? You got these big bands, you got all this kind of stuff. There's a kind of, there's a creeping weddingization of American Jewry. Uh, so you spend, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars on the wedding or the bar mitzvah, and the band, 
And then you give to the UJA or to the uh, scholars program here or some whatever. You give, you know, your check, $100, $180, whatever, uh, zero times high, whatever it is you're giving. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, so the, uh, this is, uh, you know, what good is that? Uh, it's actually a very, very good point. It's a very good point because let's face it, when you have those big parties, yes, people enjoy them. I certainly enjoy them, especially if there's alcohol. Although usually I only, only drink them when I'm with company or alone. Uh, but, and I have a similar rule for eating, I uh, never eat on an empty stomach except after fast days. Uh, I haven't found a way to uh, avoid violating it after fast days. But I enjoy it, but let's face it, uh, there, is something, there is something in the nature of avodazora, of avodazara, of idolatry involved in these big bashes and these, these, these uh, uh, ostentatious uh, parties. So said God to him, I know that even if you were commanded to offer your only son to me, you would not refuse. Don't worry about Abraham. You would give up anything for me. Don't worry. You haven't set aside a single, single bull. You haven't done any sacrificing. I know you would. Okay. According to Rabbi Elazar, who, mentioned, who maintained that the employment of the Va Elohim, sometime after this, literally, this is too literal, but you could translate it, sometime afterward, and God tested Abraham. We won't go into the grammar of that. Va Elohim. Uh, and God tested Abraham. You could have just said God tested Abraham. Sometime afterward, God tested Abraham. If you want to be overly literal, you could translate it sometime afterwards, and God tested Abraham. What that means is he, God, and his court, the heavenly court, his angelic court, the king and his council. It was the ministering angels who spoke thus. And here's what the ministering angels said. It wasn't Abraham having misgivings. It was, the, according to Rabbi Elazar, it was the ministering angels. Here's what they said. This Abraham rejoiced and made all his rejoice, yet he did not set aside for God a single bullock or ram. Said the Holy One, blessed be he, even if we tell him to offer his own son, he will not refuse. So the ideas come into the divine mind of having Abraham to sacrifice his own son, but only as a theoretical possibility. It's not necessary. There's no reason for it. We know that Abraham would do it. Don't worry about that. He didn't offer a single bullock or ram and had this big party. No, he won't worry. That's not a big problem. All right. But it's in God's mind. Now look what the Midrash then does. It then shifts the scene. Right? We've had um, Abraham and God dialoguing. We have a scene in the divine council, God and his ministering angels. Now we go to the next paragraph here at the bottom of page two. Isaac and Ishmael were engaged in a controversy. Now on earth we've got Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, 13 years older than Isaac, circumcised at the age of, what, 14 years older probably, circumcised at the age of 13. Isaac, circumcised at the age of eight days. The latter, namely Ishmael, said, I am more beloved than you because I was circumcised at the age of 13. While the other retorted, I am more beloved than you because I was circumcised at eight days. Why would it be better to be circumcised at the age of 13? Because he could resist. It's a bigger operation. It's a more dangerous operation. And he knew what was happening. He knew what was coming off, so to speak. Right? Um, I got nervous one time. I was looking in the yellow pages for a moil. I saw this once advertising half off. I wasn't even going to give him a tip. Um, so, um, so I'm, but that's why he could, have, you know, he could resist. Why is it better to be circumcised at eight days? Because at eight days, that's kahalacha. That's what Jewish law is. Jewish law is a child, if medically cleared for circumcision, supposed to be circumcised at eight days. Like I once heard a, a, a Rebbe Nashir uh, talk about this. He said, suppose you're a moil and you have two babies. One was born three weeks ago, had jaundice, couldn't be sacrificed. Sacrifice. Oh, boy. That's, that, that, there's, there's a real Freudian slip. Couldn't be circumcised on the, uh, on the eighth day. And the other one was born eight days ago. Today's Tuesday. The other one was born last Tuesday. 
So uh, early in the morning, which one do you circumcise first? You might say circumcise the one who's three weeks. He, he's, al he's already 13 days overdue. Circumcise him. But in fact, the halacha is you, the, ideally it's done on the eighth day. So you don't lose any mitzvah per se if you go from the 21st day to the 22nd day. But if you go from the eighth day to the ninth day, you do lose the mitzvah. So you might say, Isaac says, I'm the first person in history to have been circumcised according to the halacha. Okay. Um, Said Ishmael, "Dim, I'm more beloved because I could have protested, yet did not." Right? He's got him there. Isaac can't say, "Oh, I could have protested. I was eight days old. Forget it." At that moment, Isaac exclaimed, "Oh, the God would appear to me and bid me cut off one of my limbs." We won't speculate what limb. Uh, then I would not refuse. As I, Isaac said, "You know, I, I really wish I had a way to get back at him and demonstrate that I would not refuse. I would not uh, protest." just as you didn't protest when you were uh, 13 years old. Said God, even if I bid you sacrifice yourself, you would not refuse. Okay, notice what's changed here. What's changed is now it's a self-sacrifice on the part of Isaac. Now we're talking about the heroism of Isaac, not simply the heroism of Abraham, which I think is the point of the biblical story. Okay, um, another version. Here's the top of page three. Said Ishmael to him, this is what Ishmael says to Isaac, top of page 3. I am more beloved than you since I was circumcised at the age of 13, but you were circumcised as a baby and could not refuse. Isaac retorted, all that you lent to the Holy One, blessed be he, was three drops of blood. That's what it has to be. It has to be three drops of blood at least shed in the circumcision. But lo, I'm now 37 years old, which we've talked about before. Yet if God desired of me that I be slaughtered, I would not refuse. Big deal. You gave three drops of blood. Big deal. Uh, I would be willing to be slaughtered for God. Said the Holy One, blessed be he, Hare Hasha'ah, this is the moment. In other words, this idea has been coming up. And, you know, Abraham sort of, God said, don't worry, if I said slaughter his son, he'd do it. Forget it. And uh, uh, the, the angels say, hey, you know, uh, he didn't say anything aside for you. If he said slaughter his son, he'd do it. But now, in a sense, Isaac is volunteering for it. And then he says, that's the moment. It's almost like it has to have Isaac's consent before it can be done. Uh, but the idea is to establish what? Uh, again, the, uh, that the, the genuinely beloved son, the genuinely promised son, is not the firstborn Ishmael, circumcised when he could have refused, which made him, all, make him look all the more precious in God's sight, but in fact the, uh, the uh, son uh, Isaac. Uh, so there's a kind of Isaac-Ishmael controversy, and that's the reason here for the Akedah. Let's go to number six here on page three. I mentioned this last night. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, like one who carries his stake on his shoulder. That's uh, S-T-A-K-E. Uh, carries his stake on his shoulder. Uh, a common Roman uh, form of execution was crucifixion. Uh, in the... Uh, Michelta de Rabbi Ishmael, Tani Idik Midrash, I think in, in reaction to the Bar Kokhba War, to the persecution of the Jews by the Roman Emperor Hadrian, they actually say to those who, uh, who love me, who are the people who love me? Those who are willing publicly to teach Torah or to practice circumcision or to carry the lulav in public or whatever, uh, even though they, it results in, circum in, in, in crucifixion. Even though it results in, in crucifixion. So here you can see even more of an attempt to see Isaac as a kind of martyr. It's like, it's like somebody who carries a stake on his shoulder. Uh, you can see the power of the image you have in some of the Gospels of Jesus carrying his own 
stake. I don't know of any evidence that the, the victims carried their own cross, so to speak, on their shoulders. They're about to be impaled or uh, crucified. I don't think that, but, but that narrative touch makes it a much more uh, powerful event. And one of the Gospels, though, he can't do it. The stake, the, the, the crucifix, whatever you call this thing, falls off, the cross falls off him, and the man named Simon of Cyrene has to carry it uh, for him. Okay. Um, Rabbi Hanina said, why is the knife called ma'achelet, a rare word for knife? Why is it called that? But it comes from the root achal, meaning to eat. Because it makes food, ochalim, fit to be eaten. While the rabbi said, all eating, they disagree with Rabbi Hanina. The rabbi said, all eating, achilot, which Israel enjoy in this world, they enjoy only because of the merit of that ma'achelet, knife. That somehow, this was a very important uh, a theme, which we'll talk about more tomorrow, that the act of the uh, Akedah, Abraham's obedience and Isaac's obedience in the Akedah, establishes a kind of reservoir of merit, uh, adding to the idea of zuchutavot, the merit of the fathers, which stands to the benefit of the descendants of the Jewish people through all history. Even the food that people are eating, they're eating only because of Abraham's using that ma'achelet from the same root, root as food. And the two of them walked off together, or walked on together, however you translate that, one to bind and one to be bound. One to slaughter and the other to be slaughtered. What's going on there? I think what's going on there is that the, um, they want to stress, as perhaps the biblical verse itself does, the unity and unanimity of the father and the son. It's not an act of violence against Isaac. Isaac is uh, at one with his father in this act. That, in fact, this is uh, a, a, a joint enterprise. And, of course, they think Isaac is 37 years old and knows exactly what's about to happen, uh, in which case uh, he could have fled. But the point is, he didn't. Now, here we come to an interesting one here in 7. Then Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, Avi. Why do we have this? They've been walking along here for three days, and he hasn't said anything. Now, biblical narrative in that sense is not realistic, but why should it be realistic? It, as I mentioned last night, it, it focuses on two individuals involved in dialogue with each other. You don't have much scene setting in biblical narrative. It's not like the Homeric poems we hear about the wine-dark sea, that sort of thing, uh, large descriptions of landscape. You really don't have that in biblical narrative. It's interested in a human drama. Uh, uh, so obviously, uh, from a realistic point of view, Isaac must have said something to his father. I mean, presumably, uh, uh, you know, if, if Isaac's a young child, he must have said something like, Daddy, can we stop for an ice cream cone? Daddy, I have to make a pee-pee, Daddy. Right? Uh, or are we there yet, Daddy? Uh, uh, something like that must have gone on in, in realistically, but the biblical narrative is not interested in these realistic touches. It has a, it has a larger uh, a goal in front, a larger message. So the question the Midrash is asking, why does Isaac suddenly speak? And when he speaks, seems to raise to them a doubt about the whole process. Namely, here are the, uh, the fire stone and the wood. doesn't mention the knife. Uh, where is the sheep to be sacrificed? Very good question. Hey, we, we forgot something. Right? We forgot something. We left our sheep back in the hotel room. Right? Uh, uh, what's that all about? It suggests that Isaac is questioning, doubting, or uh, things seem a little less unanimous 
at that point. So it says this, Samael went to the patriarch. Samael has a name that seems to mean something like poison of God. And it's a devil. It's a demon. More than a lot of Jews like to admit, demonology is something that's around in, in uh, Talmudic Judaism, and, and for hundreds of years later, perhaps even, even today. And what do these demons do? Well, one thing they try to do is they try to drive a wedge between the Jewish people and God. They try to drive a wedge between Jewish people and the Torah. And they try to drive a wedge between Jewish people and Shmirat and Mitzvot, the observance of the commandments. The demons, the devil, wants the Jews not to observe these commandments. So this demon figure, Samael, went to the patriarch Abraham and upbraided him, saying, What means this, old man? Have you lost your wits? I mean, this is an old guy here, right, doing this sort of stuff. If you think, if you think Isaac is 37, then you think Abraham's 137. Many people at 137, you know, are, are, they don't have all their wits about them anymore. You know what I mean? Um, I think the technical term for that is uh, ubergebeldet. Uh, have you lost your wits? You go to slay a son, grand you, the age of 100. I mean, this is a nutty thing to do. Are you out of your mind? You've been waiting for the son. You've been believing in this promise. Now you're going to go slay the son that you've been waiting for? This is completely nuts. And here's what Abraham says. Even this I do, he replied. And if he sets you an even greater test, can you stand it? How do you know this is the last test, right? You haven't read Shalom Spiegel's book. You don't know this is the last trial. Maybe there's another one after this. How do you know this is the last one? Uh, uh, as it's written, if a thing be put to you as a trial, will you be wearied? Job uh, 4.2, proving the devil can cite scripture. Even more than this, he replied. Abraham said, okay, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. Abraham has total obedience. I'm, I'm going to be up to it no matter what it is. Okay. Uh, tomorrow he will say to you, you're a murderer and are guilty. And that's maybe, he won't, maybe God won't interpret this as a sacrifice. Maybe he won't interpret this as a murder. We talked about this last night. I think most of us, seeing what happens in Genesis 22, we think of violence, killing. We think of sacrifices primarily about killing. The ancients did not. Some sacrifices didn't involve killing at all. Uh, some sacrifices didn't involve blood at all. Some sacrifices were sacrifices of liquids and vegetables. Uh, the apportionment of the remains, even of a sacrificial animal, takes up more attention than the actual killing. But maybe, in fact, uh, we should just interpret this as a killing. Maybe we just interpret this as a murder. God's going to say you're a murderer and you're guilty. Uh, still I am content, he rejoined. Abraham is not going to be shaken by this devil trying to get him to... Uh, break down, and avoid the Akedah. Seeing that he could, not achieve, he could achieve not with him, he, Samael that is, approached Isaac and said, all right, he wasn't getting over with Abraham, maybe we can try with Isaac. So he starts off with a wonderful line, son of an unhappy mother. Son of an unhappy mother. All right? If he can't get to him directly, maybe get to him through his Yiddish mama. Right? That works much, much better. Um, he goes to slay you, right? Hey, you know, uh, he's, he's going to kill you. Uh, I accept my fate, he replied. Uh, if so, said he, said Samael, shall all those fine tunics which your mother made be a legacy for Ishmael, the hated one of her house? Here is Sarah embroidering these tunics for her beloved son Isaac. So that Ishmael would not share the inheritance with Isaac, she has Ishmael expelled in the previous chapter. Now just think of this for a minute. Just think of, of your being slain, and she faces one of the most difficult things to face when you've had a death, namely cleaning out the, the clothes 
of the person uh, who's passed away. She's going to take those fine tunics, and who's going to get them? Ishmael, whom she hates. Imagine the pain of that. You're willing to accept your fate. Think of the implications of your fate for your mother. Very strong argument here. Uh, and then it says, if a word is not wholly effective, it may avail yet in part. Hence it is written, then Isaac said to his father, uh, uh, to his, uh, his father Abraham, Father. And I think that the point of that is that uh, he did put a doubt into Isaac's mind. With that point, he makes a doubt in Isaac's mind. It's interesting, you have these uh, suicide bombers who are willing to, to kill themselves in, in pursuit of their goal, but they often make uh, 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 movies uh, for their family to see. And their families are often proud of them. Uh, and uh, the, um, what happens if you were to say, all right, you know what, anyone's a suicide bomber, I'm not recommending this as policy, but what if you were to say, uh, we're killing your parents? We will hold your parents responsible. We will kill your parents. We won't just take the people out of the house and blow up the house. We'll actually blow up your parents. What would happen? I don't recommend it, uh, but I could imagine it could be a very effective policy. I believe I read the Soviets did something like that in Lebanon in the 1980s. They were kidnapping and doing things like this to Soviets in Lebanon, and they announced and carried out, we will kill the parents of anyone that does this. And guess what? The rate of suicide bombing went down. But you can see emotionally how that, in fact, could happen. In other words, uh, there's an effect. You, you may accept your own personal faith, but you know, you're part of a larger unit. So he, so he has a doubt. Then Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, why his father, my father, why does it say uh, Aviv, Avi? Uh, so that he should be filled with compassion for him. He calls him Daddy, in effect. He calls him Daddy, uh, Avi, in effect, to uh, arouse compassion uh, for him. And he said, here are the firestone and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? At which point, Abraham realizes somebody's been talking to him. We've been walking along three days now. Somebody's been talking to him. Uh, uh, he says, may that man be drowned, referring to Samael, who has thus incited him, explained he. And then he says, at all events, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. And this is a kind of redivision of the verse he will see to the uh, sheep for his burnt offering, my son. And if not, you are the burnt offering, my son. He will see, in other words, he will see to his burnt offering, comma, my son. Or he will see uh, the burnt offering is my son. All right? He will see, comma, or colon, the burnt offering is my son. So they give him a little a double talk. And the two of them walked on together, one to slaughter and the other to be slaughtered. In spite of all this whole exchange, in the last analysis, although Isaac's resolution is shaken, he gets it back together, and the two of them act as one as they uh, go along. We might as well finish today's stuff. I think we have a couple minutes here. Then an angel of the Lord called him from heaven, verse 8. Uh, Abraham, Abraham. Rabbi Chia taught this is an expression of love and encouragement. As wise he repeated. Rabbi Eliezer said, the repetition indicates that he spoke to him and to future generations. He's not just talking about Abraham. He's talking about future generations. It says, there is no generation which does not contain men like Abraham. And there is no generation which does not contain men like Jacob, Moses, and Samuel. An extraordinary statement. As extraordinary as, as uh, Abraham was, there are other generations, all other generations, have somebody in it who's like that. I think in our generation it's Ari Katz, but uh, uh, that's the Abraham type. Uh, I don't know about the Jacob, Moses, and Samuel. Uh, and he said... This is what God said. Do not raise your hand against the boy. Okay? Where was the knife? This is a Midrashic comment. Do not raise your hand. It almost sounds like there's nothing in the hand. Right? 
Tears had fallen from the angels upon it and dissolved it. Okay? The angels were so upset. I left out some mother midrashim that are very interesting on this. The angels are crying. They're going nuts. Their tears are coming down, and they dissolve this knife. So Abraham doesn't even realize he doesn't have a knife in his hand. So it says, do not raise your hand. Again, reading it too literally. Do not raise your hand against the boy. There he's reading it as uh, a hand alone. There's no knife. So what's Abraham said? Abraham is really psyched up to do this. Abraham is really psyched up to do it. Abraham really wants to pass this test according to the Abraham. So far, we'll see one that's a little more doubtful. Uh, he said, then I will strangle him. All right, I lost the knife. Big deal. I could still I could strangle him, right? Uh, that's not a, a uh, approved means of sacrifice in ancient Israel, but what are you going to do? The knife has just been dissolved. Said he to him, do not raise your hand against the boy, was the, re- was the reply. Uh, let us uh, bring forth a drop of blood from him, he pleaded. All right, you know what? I'll somehow I'll get at least one drop of blood. We'll have some token. We have to- like the token sharing, like if a, if a man has had a... a, a a uh, hygienic circumcision as a baby and then converts to Judaism, he's got to have a token circumcision with a drawing of blood. Uh, so we may have a little, a little some token something here. Uh, before the drop of blood, he pleaded. He answered, or do anything to him. So in other words, that's, the, that's what God says. Do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. They understand, don't raise your hand against the boy. All right, I'll draw just a, a, a nick him and get a little blood out. Or do anything to him. All right, don't do anything to him. Uh, for now I know. Now, you might say there's a problem here. In the plain sense of Genesis 22, it looks as though God doesn't know whether Abraham fears him or not. Uh, I think in, in the biblical universe, that's not unusual, but in the rabbinic universe, it implies something the rabbis would rather not deal with, namely that God has limited knowledge. How's God learn anything? How's God come to know something he didn't know before? How does God know that uh, Abraham fears him? Now I know it. Did he know it all along? So here's how he handles that. He changed the yadati to hodati. Uh, I have made known to all. I, it's, it's, or they revocalize yadati as yidati, a pl. I have made known to all that you love me since you have not withheld. Notice what's changed there. Obviously, the midrash is trying to change the, ver- the word yadati, I know, to something else, meaning I may know. All right, that's one thing. But that you love me. Remember we said in last night, Genesis 22 never mentions Abraham's love of God. You might infer it. Uh, in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim tradition, this Akedah comes to be thought of as demonstrating Abraham's, Abraham as the man of faith, Abraham as the man who loves God. But here, uh, uh, in the biblical text, you don't have that. But you see, the Midrash just assumes that really what we're testing is the love of God. Uh, does it, what does he love God more? His own life, vested in, in Isaac, Isaac himself, or God, uh, that you love me since you have not withheld. And do not say, the Midrash says, do not say all ills that do not affect one's own person are not ills, for indeed I ascribe merit to you as though I had bidden you sacrifice yourself and you had not refused. Here it's not so much Isaac as martyr, but Abraham as martyr. God accounts it as if he in fact had sacrificed himself. I mentioned last night that I believe it's Radak, Kimchi, uh, David Kimchi in the Middle Ages, who said that Abraham would have preferred to have sacrificed himself, that his, his soul, his life was so bound up with Isaac's, he'd rather have sacrificed himself than sacrificed Isaac. Well, here is, I ascribe it to you as if you had been bidden to sacrifice yourself and you not refused. You were, in fact, uh, willing to do that. Again, in ancient Judaism from the 2nd century on, 2nd century BCE on, martyrdom was a, a, a constant threat in Jewish life. You need to come up with a theology of martyrdom. Uh, the life of Torah was not simply the life of good things happening to people or 
uh, enjoyable Shabbos dinners. It had a real uh, cost, and there was a need to find antecedents to the martyrs, even in the Torah. Finally, we do number nine. Rabbi Isaac said, when Abraham wished to sacrifice his son Isaac, he said to him, Father, this is what Isaac said, I'm a young man, and I'm afraid my body may tremble through fear of the knife, and I will grieve you, uh, whereby the slaughter may be rendered unfit, and that will not count as a real sacrifice. Therefore, bind me very firmly. In other words, you might twitch. It takes incredibly steely nerves to, to have, have your father slit your throat uh, without uh, twitching. You may twitch involuntarily when that happens. Uh, so tie me down, get everything so firmly in place, clamp down that uh, I won't invalidate the slaughter. I mean, that would be a heck of a thing if everybody's willing to go ahead with this thing at the last minute uh, as, as the knife is striking he has a spasm, and the sacrifice is rendered invalid. Right? That's going to be a big problem. So, but the larger question here, I think, to the rabbis is, if Isaac is a willing participant, a martyr, so to speak, consciously participating, why does he have to be tied up? Why an akedah? You don't tie up the animals in Leviticus 1. If you do, it doesn't tell you that you do. When you make an olah burnt offering, why, why are we tying up this guy? What's the reason uh, for that? And the answer is he asked to be tied up because of the possibility of an involuntary spasm. Forthwith, he bound his son. Can one bind a man 37 years old, another version 26 years old, without his consent? Uh, especially if you're 137 or 126, even harder. Uh, presently, Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. He picked up the knife while tears streamed from his eyes. You see, at the human level, he is full of compassion for Isaac. At the human level, this is not expressing what he wants to do. The whole point of a mitzvah in this theology is it's not something you want to do necessarily. You train yourself to want to do it. At the human level, he feels the full pain and anguish of this act that any of us would feel. But at some other level, he is in fact nonetheless obedient. So the tears are streaming from his eyes, and these tears prompted by a father's compassion dropped into Isaac's eyes. Uh, which in other Midrashim explains why Isaac is blind at the end of his life and doesn't know which son he's blessing because he, he, he has serious problems with vision owing to the father's acidic drops, tears falling into his eyes. Yet even so, Abraham's heart rejoiced to obey the will of his creator. An extraordinary psychological spiritual portrait crying at the human level while simultaneously rejoicing with the simchat mitzvot, the, uh, the uh, uh, joy that one has in obeying the will of the creator. A very interesting description of the religious life. The angels assembled in groups above. What did they cry? The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceases. He's broken in his covenant. He's despised the cities, Isaiah 33.8. He's despised the cities. They read his meaning. He has no pleasure in Jerusalem. Has he no pleasure in Jerusalem and the temple, which he intended giving as a possession to the descendants of Isaac? He regards not man. If, if, if no merit has stood in Abraham's favor, then no creature has any value before him. In other words, the, the angels are terribly afraid this thing is actually going to happen, and they're crying, they're pointing out the problems with this for all the rest of humanity, including the Jews, uh, and uh, including Jerusalem and the temple, uh, which will never come into the hands of the Jews uh, because uh, Isaac will, uh, will have died. All right, finally we get to this last one here in uh, end of text 9. Rabbi Acha said, Abraham wondered, surely you too indulge in prevarication. Surely you're always changing your mind. Yesterday you said, for an Isaac shall seed be called to thee. Okay? Yesterday you said, 
you know what? You're going to have uh, a son uh, who's going to be, uh, don't worry about, uh, about expelling Ishmael because uh, because in Isaac you will have your descendants. Your descendants are through Isaac. Ishmael, those aren't, those aren't really the promised descendants. There's a whole kind of ambivalence in the Bible about the status of these figures like Ishmael and Edom and the people that the Ishmaelites and the Edomites descended from them. The key lineage is, is uh, Isaac's. So that means Isaac is going to live and father a nation, right? That's what you said yesterday. You then retracted and said, take your son and sacrifice him. Right? You changed your mind. Uh, well, now you bid me, do not raise your hand against the boy. First you say, Isaac is going to be the father of your descendants. Then you tell me, sacrifice Isaac. Now you tell me, don't sacrifice Isaac. What is this, Mishagas? Uh, said the Holy and blessed be to him, O Abraham, my covenant I will not profane, quoting from Psalm 89. Context, by the way, is the covenant with David. It's the covenant with David in context there. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, Genesis 17. Notice how we're, we're interweaving texts. We're interweaving here. Uh, we're interweaving here, Genesis 22 and Psalm 89. Psalm 89 dealing with God's unbreakable, irrevocable covenant with the house of David, from which the Messiah eventually comes. So... Uh, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. I said I wouldn't break my covenant, Psalm 89, and I will establish my covenant with Isaac, Genesis 17. Actually, I should just get rid of the 22. It's just Genesis in general. Um, when I bid you take your son, I will not alter that which has gone out of my lips, Psalm 89, 35, interweaving two biblical verses. You see how that's working? Did I tell you slaughter him? I said take your son, right? I said ha'alehu la'olah. Now, if you read that very literally, so literally that it's inaccurate, as plain, plain sense, ha'alehu means make him go up. Everybody knows olah is a particular type of sacrifice, a burnt offering. But if you read very literally, it's make him go up as something that goes up. If you read it very literally, God never says shochtehu. God never says slaughter him. God never says shechtim. So it says, uh, did I t- tell you slaughter him? No. I said ha'alehu, take him up. You've taken him up, now take him down. I never changed my mind. This whole idea of killing him, that was your Mishagas. I never said that. I said, take him up. You took him up, now take him down. There's no, I haven't changed my mind on anything. Now, I think underlying that's actually very funny, but I think underlying that is a certain uh, uh, thought which is different from what we've been seeing. What we've been seeing in most of Midrash is a full-throated, robust endorsement of Abraham and Isaac's obedience in the Akedah. No reservations or inhibitions about it at all. The reservations, inhibitions come like people from people like the devil, figures like the devil. Here, there may be a sense that uh, you know what, uh, there is a kind of problem here with God changing His mind, promising Isaac, promising a covenant with Isaac, having Isaac slaughtered, having Isaac not slaughtered. So they get out of it in a kind of humorous way by saying, actually, don't read it that literally. I just said, take him up. This whole sacrifice thing—that isn't part of the story. Of course, we moderns are happier with that. Right? That fits the modern temperament where we've lost a sense of sacrifice. We, think of, uh, we tend to think of obedience to God as being purely a question of moral law and ethics. And there's no particular religious connection that's not ethical, uh, not involved with ethics. So we have a problem with this. We tend to think of sacrifice as murder. And we tend to think of this uh, whole sort of thing as, a, as some sort of primitive child abuse or something. By, by and large, the rabbis don't have that particular 
modern way of thinking at it. But in this text, you can see they're worried about the change of mind of God. And they get out of that by saying, no, just take him up, take him up, not take him down. Thank you very much. Thank you.